0: As you can see from our Advent wreath with our first lit candle, this is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the start of the church's year, the church's calendar. The church calendar takes us all the way through the life of Jesus, from his birth in Bethlehem all the way to his saving death and resurrection. The birth in Bethlehem, we have Christmas, his death and resurrection at Easter. Now, I think all of us accept the notion that with something really important, we have to get ready for it. If we're running a marathon, we know we have to train. Taking examination, got to study. Going on an overseas trip, we have to make reservations, book tickets, all those good things. So when we, as we look forward to Christmas, the church invites us in Advent to do the same thing, to prepare to get spiritually ready for Christmas. Just as in spring, uh, at Lent, Lent is the time that the church invites us to get ready for Easter. So Advent is the time that the church invites us to get ready for Ready for Christmas. This is why the focus of our readings today should be surprising. Look at what we have in all three readings. Nothing is pointing us back to Jesus in Bethlehem. Nothing back to the baby in a manger. What we have is everything is pointing the opposite direction towards the end of the world. In Zechariah, we're talking about the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. Speaking of the last day. In Thessalonians, Paul tells us about the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, the last day. And our Lord Jesus himself in Luke's gospel, For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, the last day. So we expect to be looking back in time 2,000 years, and we're looking forward to an event that's not yet happened. Is it possible to think of something more removed from the baby in a manger than the end of the world? Pretty hard. So why are we focusing in our readings on the very first Sunday of Advent on the end of the world? Well, the word Advent comes from a Latin word which simply means coming or arrival. And in our creeds we proclaim two comings of Jesus. We say that he was born of the Virgin Mary when the eternally begotten Son of God became a flesh and blood human being like us. This is his first advent. He came to be with us, to take on our nature. But we also in our creed proclaim a second coming of Jesus. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So, what the church is reminding us is spiritually. This is not about a call to nostalgia, about warm, fuzzy feelings for another time, Christ's first coming. It's saying, you know, we don't have to imagine waiting. We are waiting right now. Just as the children of Israel waited for the Messiah to come, as Jesus did at Bethlehem, we are waiting for his second coming, the promise he gave to us, that he will come again. We're waiting in a very real way, and the church is asking us to be conscious of that in preparation of that wait. Now, what's the special challenge of waiting for Christ's second coming? It has been 2,000 years. It's tempting to wonder whether it will happen. You know what it reminds us as Christians? We're sort of in the middle of the 20th century. Is a playwright named Samuel Beckett who wrote a play called Waiting for Godot. And it's a very, very simple play. There are two people talking, two characters. And they're waiting for a character named Godot who never shows up. And as you go through the play, the more and more you suspect he's not coming. So we think the problem really is this character is never actually going to come. But Jesus tells us the problem is exactly the opposite. In Luke 18.8, he says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Again, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? Jesus says the issue isn't Christ's coming. He will. The issue is whether any of us will still be waiting. The issue is will we be waiting for the Lord who surely comes. Now, why is Christ's second coming so important to us? Well, our salvation will not be complete until we are clothed with our resurrection bodies and look at God face to face, forever. We're sort of in the position of the children of Israel. It's sort of three steps to their God keeping his promise. His promise to Abraham was the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey would be theirs. That was the promise. When they were slaves in Egypt, the first step is he took them out in the Exodus. He takes them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his armies are drowned. Right, The, the next day they see the bodies wash up. They are free from Pharaoh forever. They will never again be subject to Pharaoh. They've been saved. But somebody must have turned around and said, are we there yet? That they weren't in Canaan. Right, there was a whole desert, there was a long trip between hither and yon, between that being saved at the Red Sea and that ultimate promise being kept in the land flowing with milk and honey. There was this time of transition where God walked with them as a pillar of fire, as a a pillar of cloud before them, showing them the way during that time. So they were being saved during that time. They were saved when they crossed the Red Sea. They were being saved as God faithfully walked with them. But they were only actually saved. The promise was only kept the day they crossed the Jordan and entered into the land. That's when the promise was kept. Well, that's our story as Christians. You know, sometimes uh, people will ask you the question, have you been saved? i love to answer it, yes, I've been saved. In my baptism I was saved. I was freed from sin, from the, from the tyranny of Satan, from death. But that's not the end of the story. I'm being saved right now. I have been saved. I'm being saved right now. We're being, this is a time of transformation. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3.18, my favorite verse. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's where we are now, in a time of transformation, being ready to meet the Lord. So I have been saved. I'm being saved. But I, I will only be fully saved the day that I have that promise met. Paul talks about this way. He says now... We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part; then I shall know fully. Then, so we have been saved; we're being saved. Our fullness of our salvation is only in our resurrection bodies, with God forever, looking at God face to face. They call it theologians call it the beatific vision. What that means, Latin. Everything sounds fancy in Latin. It means makes you happy. Beatific means something that makes you happy. It's the one thing we look at. That truly makes us happy. That will be the fullness of our salvation. So, what's the challenge if Jesus said, Well, it's sure he's coming back, but will anyone be waiting? What's the challenge for us? And we need a special virtue. It's a gift from God. There are three virtues that we're told in Scripture are essential for salvation faith, hope, and love. Those are the three. They're called theological virtues because not only are they essential, but they're gifts of God. We can't make them up. We can't exercise. We, they are gifts of God that are given to all of us. But they're gifts of God. And what we would focus on in Advent is one of those, the lost virtue. People talk a lot about faith and a lot about love. But often we miss hope. And that's the main theme of Advent, the virtue of hope. So what is hope? First of all, the word hope can be misleading. Because in the New Testament, it had a meaning that we normally don't have in modern English. In English, when we say, I hope somebody's coming, it expresses doubt, right? It's not a sure thing. Maybe we'll get lucky, but it's not a sure thing. I hope he's coming. I said, he is coming. If I say, I hope he's coming, it expresses doubt. The word hope in the New Testament reflects the opposite. It's confident assurance. I know this is going to happen. Confident assurance. It's like Paul in Philippians 1.6 where he says, I'm sure of this, that he will began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, a confident assurance in our lives? I make a comparison, going back to the Greeks. Remember Greek theater that you had back in high school? And they would talk about comedy and tragedy, but comedy doesn't mean like we think of Netflix or something, things that make you laugh. What made something a comedy was that things turn out right. The turn, things turn out well the way they should. There's a happy ending. A tragedy was the opposite. A comedy was a story with a happy ending. Our hope in Jesus is that every one of our stories is a comedy. Every one of our stories has a happy ending in a resurrection body in the presence of the living God. Now, another way of looking at hope is hope is the virtue of faith extended over time. And a way to look at this, what do you mean extended over time? Well, think about two analogies. Think of one analogy as getting married. Faith, uh, First of all, let's say faith is how we enter into a relationship with God. Hope is how we remain faithful in that relationship. Again, faith is how we enter into relationship with God. Hope is how we remain faithful once we're in that relationship. So an analogy would be, think of love and marriage. Faith is what gets you married. Love is what keeps you married, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Faith gets you married. Love keeps you married. Or our first job. Faith is what gets us the job. Hope is what keeps us in that job. So, faith doesn't, hope doesn't mean that we don't experience all the struggles of life. We do, but we experience them differently. Look, for example, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, we read from that today, Paul's letter. Elsewhere in that letter, he talks about death. And he said, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul does not say we don't grieve for the dead. God forbid. Jesus himself wept when his friend Lazarus died. He wept. People commented on his weeping. It's not that we don't feel grief. We feel it differently. Not a hopelessness. We feel we know there's something more. And with hope, we look at the end of our lives, our own death. We look at the end of the world when the Lord Jesus comes. And instead of looking those as death pangs, we look at them as birth pains. They lead somewhere, into something better. They are not the end of the road, they're the beginning. This is why we celebrate the Feast of Saints on the day they died, the day they were born to eternal life. We experience the same things, but we experience them profoundly differently because we know our life has a happy ending. And Happy, by the way, in the Greek word we use, like, the Beatitudes, happy are the, you know, the poor in spirit, means everything working the way it should, a square peg in a square hole. It means everything being exactly as it should be. That's what happiness means. Now, one of the challenges of the virtue of hope is all the great virtues are like roses. They have a lot of thorns around them. And there are two thorns that surround the virtue of hope. One is the sin of presumption, and the other is the sin of despair. So what's presumption? Presumption is, I don't really have to do anything terribly positive to respond to God. That's sort of what he does. Thank God, you know, I was just sort of, I'm here, and it's going to work out. Jesus told us, had very hard words for this, to warn us. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, speaking of the last day, he says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the first challenge of hope is presumption. We presume upon God's grace, which is meant to lead us to repentance. It's not meant to lead us where we are. It leads to transformation, to change lives. The other sin, the other thorn around the virtue of hope is despair. And despair, we have to point out, we know that when people repent, often there's a sense of grief in what has happened in our lives. And we turn around. There's a difference between despair and godly grief. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We have a beautiful example of this in scriptures. Two people very close to the Lord Jesus broke his heart and betrayed him. One of the hardest things in Jesus' death was the betrayal of his friends. They weren't there when he needed them. One was Judas, who again betrays Jesus for the silver. Judas really knew He'd done something terrible, and he bitterly regretted it. He actually takes the money and throws it into the treasury of the temple. He doesn't want any attachment to it, but he cannot believe that God will save him. He goes out and hangs himself. That's despair. But somebody else betrayed the Lord. The apostle Peter. And maybe it's worse in some ways. Peter was actually closer to the Lord. He was the one who said, I'm this rock. He was, this is Peter. He was the spokesman. And Peter betrayed Jesus not once, three times. You know, when they come and say, you know, are you with this man? The first time, we might say, maybe he was caught by surprise. Somebody, people catch you by surprise. He had plenty of time to catch up from the surprise. It was three times, later times, three times separately, he denied Jesus. He had every reason to despair. He even saw Jesus as he was walking out. It said so he looked at Jesus. But he didn't despair. He knew the fundamental truth that God's love on the cross is bigger than any sin we can imagine. You see, it's ironic. Despair looks like humility. It's exactly the opposite. Despair is the ultimate form of the sin of pride. We actually believe something we did can be more powerful and bigger than the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That takes pride beyond imagination. Something about us is so bad that the sacrifice and Jesus on the cross isn't enough, that we somehow have put ourselves... It's unimaginable. That's what despair looks like. So how can we, practically speaking, how can we go about looking to live lives of hope as we await in assurance for the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, we're invited this time, to remember, to take the pattern of Israel. Remember, Israel had to wait for the coming of the Messiah, and we're waiting for his second coming. Okay. But there's a profound difference that changes everything. You might remember that in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Luke really seems to go over the top with John the Baptist. Let me read the verses to you. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, we understand all of that for Jesus. Why all of this for John the Baptist? Look at the words, The word of the Lord came to John. God had not spoken to Israel for 450 years. The last of the prophets had spoken Almost 12 generations earlier was the end of God's voice. While they waited, they waited alone. They waited with no ongoing uh, voice of God. They waited alone with the promise that someday another prophet would come. And this is why it's a big deal when John comes. The voice of prophecy is renewed. That's the story of Israel waiting. They waited with the voice of God silent. For us, it's exactly the opposite. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus says in his last sermon, I don't leave you orphans. Jesus is with us even now during the wait. As we await his coming in glory, we don't wait for Jesus. He's already here with us in his Holy Spirit. We await his manifestation in glory, but he's already here. We do not wait alone. It makes all the difference in the world. This is why the church fathers spoke of a third coming of Jesus. They said the first coming of Jesus birth. The second is the second coming in glory at the second, at the last day. But Saint Bernard of Clairvaux speaks of an intermediate coming into the heart of each believer. It's right out of Scripture. He points to John fourteen twenty three. Jesus says, "If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and make our home with him." That's a problem promise for now. That's the promise we have now. And look at what Jesus says. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit that we receive at our baptism. And by the way, such as some people, all of us receive the Holy Spirit at our baptism. Look at what Peter says on the day of Pentecost to the crowds. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why at baptism, we always anoint and say, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're marked as Christ's own forever. We receive that Holy Spirit, the living presence of God in us. And this is given to every believer. We have the promise of Jesus himself, his own words. Jesus said, whoever, notice he doesn't say some, some very lucky few or people who try hard. He says, whoever believes in me. As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Now, why is this presence of Jesus in his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, why is that so important to us? For four, Basically, three things. The first thing is the Holy Spirit gives us the prayer we cannot pray. In Romans, Paul says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So often we don't even know how to put words around what we're feeling. Or we pray wrongly. We pray for things that would actually hurt us. The Holy Spirit means no matter how we pray, with the Holy Spirit in us, that Spirit is praying even as we pray, and God always answers that prayer. I'd like to put it this way. The Holy Spirit prays the prayer we should have prayed if we had God's knowledge of what's best for us. He always prays with us, even if we don't have a clue. And we always know God hears that prayer. God never says no to Jesus. The Father never says no to his Son. We know that we have that spirit of prayer, that our prayers are always answered. The second is we're told that the Spirit gives us the word of truth that we could not hope to utter. In Matthew 10, it says, Jesus says to us, when they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking uh, through you. The Holy Spirit gives us the wisdom. It's the Holy Spirit who does all of, has all power. It's only his word that converts. It's only his word that transforms lives. It's always the work of the Holy Spirit. So he gives us the prayer we cannot pray. The Holy Spirit gives us the word of truth we cannot utter. But something else, he gives us the power to meet God in his word and sacraments. You see, a lot of people read the Bible, the Bible scholars who don't believe in God. It seems like they're immune. It's like they've taken immunization against the word of God. They can read the word of God and know all sorts of details about it. They don't believe in God. It's only when God speaks through that word that it's not just an old book where it actually has the living voice of God. This, by the way, is the reason why we stand for the gospel. The actual reason is to remind us we're not reading about Jesus. We're hearing his voice now if we will listen. That the Holy Spirit will speak to us in the gospel, Jesus now. We're not reading what happened a few thousand years ago when he spoke. We're saying right now the spirit of Jesus is speaking to us if we will hear and what about, we talk about the sacraments. We always have the prayer, of the Eucharistic prayer, send your Holy Spirit on these gifts to make them for us, the body and blood of your Son. Otherwise, without the Holy Spirit, we're just going through the motions. It's like a play, dressed up for a play. The Holy Spirit changes everything. He takes bread and wine and makes an actual participation in the body and blood of Christ. He's the one who does this. So the Holy Spirit gives us the prayer we can't utter. He gives us the word of truth we can't utter. He allows us the power of God to work, for God to actually speak through us in his word. Really speak to our hearts and change us and to meet us in his sacraments. So, what if that doesn't describe where I am today? What if I'm not living a life of hope or I don't have that that living presence, I don't feel that living presence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus with me in the Holy Spirit? It's what, I love, the, uh, the Henry Thoreau famously called that, he says, most people live lives of quiet desperation. Desperation, the word desperation means literally unhope. You know, it's literally a life of the opposite of hope. What if that describes me? Deep down, I go through this, but I don't have that hope. What can I do? Boy, do I have good news for you. There's a, uh, there's a wonderful, I keep going back to it, you have to bear with me, is I love a story which seems very mundane in the book of Genesis that I think is very, very powerful. It's about Isaac, the son of Abraham, was the, the, first, the first person God speaks to directly, speaks to Abraham directly, the, the father of Israel, the father of all believers. And his son is Isaac. And what happens in the ancient Near East, there's not that much water, and so if you want to get rid of people you don't want around, you basically put rocks in their wells so they can't draw out the water. If you can't have water, you can't stay. So we're told that the Philistines, who weren't crazy about having Abraham around, put rocks in the wells that he dug. They stopped them up. And we're told simply, let me quote to you from Genesis 26:18, Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had dropped, stopped up after the death of Abraham. Now you're saying, boy, I don't get it. How could that be very inspiring? Why did he dig up those wells? You see, in the Middle East, there's not a lot of water. Here, in the, middle, in the Midwest and things, the water table is down there anywhere. If you drill down far enough, you will find water. We're very rich with aquifers and things. We can have water. That's not true in the Middle East. There are places there is no water. And so a well meant something very precious. It meant there really, we know for a fact, there's water there. No matter how many stones are in that well, there is water, you can be assured that your labors will not be in vain. Well, that's where we are. As Christians in our baptism, God has given us that kernel, that seed, the presence of his Holy Spirit. It's down there. The water is there. We can be sure we have the Holy Spirit. Again, Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So what happens if through sin or neglect my wells are pretty stuffed up with stones, I mean, I'm not drawing much water recently or any water. What do I do? Remember, we're talking about the first coming of Jesus. He sends John the Baptist to prepare the way. And what is John's message? A message we say at at Ash Wednesday. We remind people, we impose ashes. We say what? We say, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. We should heed that call. That's how we can open up that well. We can heed God's call to ask for the gift that he never refuses. Jesus promises that he never will say no if we ask for the gift of his Holy Spirit. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now we say repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance sounds like hard work and there's an element where it's hard. But it's not nearly as hard as we make it. You see, I think often when we think of repentance, we think of it's like cleaning up the house for company when it's really a mess, when the kids have been around like Thanksgiving and you know, the house is a wreck and somebody announces they're going to show up and you say, no one can see this and you want a massive campaign. I think a lot of us feel that repenting, it works like that. What we do is we basically clean up our lives to make them worthy for God to come in. <laughs> that can't be done. That's hopeless. God is like the friend who comes over early to help us clean the house. Repentance means simply opening the door to let Jesus come in and change our lives. It's all about grace. He doesn't put this burden on. He says, let me in. Don't leave me at the door. I'll come in and clean. This is where we have that wonderful word in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. So, Hope is the gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift given to all of us. And why is it so important? Why do we need to look for it now as we prepare for Christmas during this Advent season? It's only in the power of hope, it's only in the power of the Holy Spirit that we truly can say from our hearts, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.